What's going on, everyone? It's time for the Down in the Valley podcast. This is Todd Golden, sports editor and Indiana State beat writer for the Terre Haute Tribune Star. We are up to, and I'm going to say this with an asterisk, episode 30 in the Down in the Valley podcast. We are in the middle of the Northern Iowa series up here on the road. ISU finally gets away from Holman Center after playing a significant portion of January inside their own arena. Um, It is colder than hell up here in Cedar Falls. Now, those of us in the Valley who have been around like to tease uh, the Northern Iowa people and Cedar Falls generally, it's uh, often had the, or for many years, had the kind of teasing nickname of Frostbite Falls because it's the northernmost city in the Missouri Valley Conference. Iowa um, is very often very cold during conference season, both here and at Drake and Des Moines. And those of us who have traveled the league for a long time have all had very cold or very snowy trips up here to Iowa. I've had several. Um, However, uh, this is the coldest one I have ever had by probably quite a bit of, uh, quite, a, quite a margin. I am recording this early Sunday morning, and the current temperature in Cedar Falls, hate to sound like Jesse Walker or something like that here, is minus 11, and that is an air temperature. That is not wind chill. Um, wind chill, if you're curious, is minus 25. So I, I'm from Wisconsin, and as I make painfully aware uh, sometimes, probably to your annoyance, on my social media and other, uh, if you talk to me sometimes about my cheese-headedness, I'm very proud of that. Um, one of the ways that comes out is when it gets cold, um, sometimes, like a lot of people from the northern states, I'm like, well, this isn't that bad, quit whining, you know, it's it's winter, it's supposed to be cold, blah, blah, blah. Um, that's a trait that runs through a lot of northern Midwesterners. However, my standard for, um, you know, being fake tough about cold is when it gets to minus double-digit temperatures. Once it gets below minus 10, then all my bravado is out the window. It's too freaking cold. Um, and it was cold walking in and out of the McLeod Center today. It's cold in my room, actually. Um, I'm staying in a, it's a nice hotel. I'm staying in a converted John Deere factory uh, in Waterloo, Iowa, the twin city of Cedar Falls, um, historical building here in uh, near downtown Waterloo. Um, and if you ever stayed, I'm trying to think of a, a, an equivalent, there's not really one in Indiana. The one I remember is when I lived in Akron, Ohio, they carved out an old Quaker factory and turned it into hotels in a, in a mall. Um, but the, the ceilings here are really tall. I mean, Typical hotel ceiling is like a house ceiling. It's like, what, eight or nine feet tall. Um, The ceilings in this place are probably pretty close to 20 feet tall. So you may be hearing an echo in my voice. That's because this room is so large. Normally, that's really cool because it makes it feel like it's a really giant room. And um, it is bigger than a typical hotel room, which is kind of nice. It's working to my disadvantage this time, though, because it's really cold in here. Because obviously, with a higher ceiling... It's not holding in the heat, has much bigger window than a typical hotel room does. I got this thing covered up uh, to the degree I can to try to insulate the heat we do get in here. So it's a crisp, 
65 degrees in my room right now, and I can't, I can't control the temperature. The hotel does that. They probably don't want people cranking uh, the heat all night so it goes out or their energy bill goes through the roof. So um, it's kind of like the outer limits. I have no control over my heat. I brought a space heater with me, but I don't want to burn the damn building down, so uh, probably not wise for me to bring that in. So I'm roughing it here a little bit here in my room. Um, luckily, I have... A second bedspread so I'll be definitely utilizing that when I finally go to sleep but um, so an interesting trip up here to Cedar Falls it's uh, um, I had one other hell trip up here um, while I'm on the subject when I came here 11 years ago um, it, it's, the conditions were actually very similar to the conditions I drove up here in with one exception um, when I left Terre Haute in 2009 um, the weather it was raining um, but as I went north, the temperature dropped. So I drove through Illinois, and it was a downpour almost the whole way. Um, and I was driving a Dodge Neon at the time, which was like a sport model. And so the hubcaps, uh, and this will be important as I tell the story, had pretty wide open hubcaps. So a lot of stuff could get inside of the, the end of the rims. Uh, literally like a minute or two after I crossed the Mississippi River in the Quad Cities, uh, the temperature dropped enough where that rain turned to snow um, and it was dropping quick so I never had any ice it went straight to snow by the time I got to uh, Iowa City which is where you have to turn north to head up to northern Iowa um, there was quite a bit of snow on the ground at that point there was probably a couple inches already because it was a pretty big storm but like I said I'm from Wisconsin and I'm like I'm not gonna let this snow get in my way I'm getting up to uh, I was staying in, in a different hotel in Waterloo that year. And so I'm charging up uh, I-380, which is when you take branches off of I-80 in Iowa City, um, just chucking through Cedar Rapids and coming up uh, the interstate, uh, just hauling past people, going like 55, 60 in snow. And it wasn't like cleared snow. It was like on the road. And I didn't care. I'm all cocky and thinking, you know, I, I've driven in snow enough. It's no big deal. Get to my hotel in Waterloo, and I was very triumphant about getting here and getting through, you know, pretty good snowstorm. Um, and thought, you know, I was, I was, uh, you know, king. Sh um, pardon my language, but uh, so what I didn't know though was is that the temperature dropped below zero that night as well. And while I was churning through the snow, all that snow was building up in the rims of my tires. So I get into my car the next day uh, to drive. Waterloo is about 10 miles from Cedar Falls. Uh, so one way to go is to go, there's like a, a four lane US highway south of Waterloo and you take that to go to the exit to get to the um, McLeod Center and the Unidorm, which is next door to it. Um, so I'm pulling out on the road to get out to US 20, which is the road, and my car is just really sluggish. I couldn't get it over 40 miles per hour. I'm like, what the hell is going on here? So um, I pull into a gas station, didn't notice any anything yet, um, didn't think anything of it, thought maybe something was, I thought something was stuck to the bumper, or I, I had no clue. I'd never experienced that before in my many years of car issues that I'd have with other cars. So I keep going and then all of a sudden my, my tire blows right as I pull out on a US 20 to head to the McLeod Center. Well, 
Luckily, luckily I left early enough and I just crawled on the flat all the way to the McLeod Center. I did actually make to the game. And I look at the tire and I mean, it wasn't just a blowout. I mean, of course I would driven on it so it looked worse, but um, I mean, it was shredded. And I was like, whoa, what the hell's going on here? So um, I go in and cover the game and bear in mind that this was a, a Sunday game. So my chances of getting into a tire shop were pretty slim and none to begin with because most tire shops aren't open on Sunday. Um, and what little chance I did have was gone because the game went double overtime. ISU actually won the game. That was the year that ISU started off terrible. They were uh, lost their first four or five games, I think, maybe more than that. They, they won their first game down at a tournament in Louisville. It was McKenna's, Kevin McKenna's second year as coach. Um, and started the season, they were like four and, I want to say they started like four and 16 or something like that, ultimately. And this was the Northern Iowa teams um, that had Ali Farokmanesh and Johnny Moran and Jordan Eggleseeder. Very good. You know, they they won the league that year ultimately. But ISU did beat them in double overtime uh, up here at McLeod Center. So that was a big deal and uh, wrote that up, did it all right, got the story done. It was an afternoon, mid-afternoon game. And But then I had to go to attend to my uh, stricken car. So... Um, <laughs> I changed the tire out in the McLeod Center parking lot. I remember distinctly walking. I was like, because I was dressed up for the game. And I was like, guys, I got to go change clothes. Is there a bathroom here somewhere? So I changed into some dirty clothes in the arena. Go out and change the tire. Um, put the donut on it. And managed to get a, I was intending on driving back that day. Uh, but I knew I had to get the tire dealt with the next day. So... Uh, got a hotel there in Cedar Falls, like a cheap hotel. And it was only like a, maybe a five minute drive from McLeod Center to where my hotel was. And I knew I had a bigger issue than just a blown tire when I pull into the parking lot of the hotel and my donut was smoking. I'm like, what the heck is this? So the dealership that I took it to was downhill, thankfully, from my hotel. So I basically put it in a neutral on a main drag University Avenue in Cedar Falls and just pulled over into the berm and tried to stay out of everybody's way so I didn't shred the donut. Pull it in there, they look at it and they said, sir, you have a frozen wheel, which I'd heard of that, um, but clearly had never experienced it. And what had happened was, is all that snow that I churned through when I drove up to Cedar Falls, uh, got stuck up in the rim and froze when it got cold and basically broke the entire wheelbase. So the repair for that was $900, uh, which I didn't have $900 to spend on a car repair at that time. Now my kids were pretty little. I don't think my wife was working full time yet. Um, I'm pretty sure she wasn't. So that was a pretty major problem. That and the fact that when they came back at me, they said, well, we don't, it wasn't, my car was a Dodge, I think it was a Dodge dealership, but they didn't have the, the wheel in. So like, we'll have to wait like three days to get the wheel. I'm like, well, I can't wait three days. I gotta go <laughs> get back to Terre Haute. Um, I'm like, well, what else can you do for me? Can you go to a junkyard or something like that? So they did do that and they found one at a junkyard. So they put a junkyard uh, wheel on my car um, and I was able to make it back to Terre Haute on the, um, 
on the uh, temporary rim. And I think I did get it replaced at some point. That car didn't last much longer, which made it even worse that I paid that much for the wheel. That that car made it through the last trip it made was to the Penn State football game in 2011. Um, and then I was on my way to Western Kentucky a couple weeks after that, and the thing blew out its transmission on Voorhees in Terre Haute. Um, and uh, I did manage to make it down to that game, though. My wife, uh, I used her car and drove down to Bowling Green, and it's a good thing I did because ISU beat Western Kentucky in that game. But um, anyway, that was my <sighs> misadventure here at Northern Iowa, a very expensive one, um, and uh, one I will not forget. So hopefully that won't happen in the cold here. And the important thing, apart from my own stories and misadventures, is what you really care about is sycamores are hot you know the cold weather may be here but they are hot seven in a row now for indiana state we keep doing these podcasts after victories today a 61 to 57 win over northern iowa in their house at mcleod center and this was a tough one uh you know it would be northern iowa has struggled this year and there's an asterisk next next to their struggles um they of course lost uh their all everything uh, guard AJ Green. Uh, shortly after the season started, he played three games uh, with a with a pretty bad hip injury. Um, he had to have surgery on it, and he is done for the year. If you know you and I's team, um, everything they do ran through AJ Green. He's their best shooter, best ball handler. Um, they pl- everybody plays off of him. Um, you know they they had a really good inside out situation with him and uh, Austin Fife, their center which is why you and I was picked to win the league this year. But when Green got hurt, that was going to be big trouble for you and I, and, and, and it has proven to be. They're 5-12 um, and 12 now, 3-8 and eight in the league. And However, this is you and I. This is a Ben Jacobson coach team, and you know they're going to be sound. You know they're going to fight. You know they're going to play low possession game. They're going to play tough defense. Um, and that's exactly what Indiana State got today. This was not any kind of easy game whatsoever. Um, for long stretches of the game, you and I took away quite a bit of what ISU wanted to do, particularly in the first half. Um, fortunately for the Sycamores, they had Tyreek Key on their side, and Tyreek had, I think, his best game of the season without question. Um, Tyreek had 31 points, 20 of them coming in the second half, 11 of those coming in basically the first five minutes of the second half to uh, break what had been a three-point UNI lead at halftime uh, into, at the end of his run, I think it was a seven-point ISU lead at that point. Um, Tyreek was 12 of 18 from the field, five of six at the line, seven rebounds, uh, 31 points, uh, four turnovers, but you know you can forgive that. And Key was also guarding Trey Burhau, who uh, next to Austin Fife is really their next best uh, uh, threat on the offensive end. So what a game for Tyreek Key and a lot of the shots he was hitting. You know, Tyreek has that kind of, uh, you know, he loves that fall away turnaround jumper. He was hitting those. Three-point shot, I mean, he was two for seven, but um, he hit a, stuck a couple that were in large moments. He hit those. Um, Tyreek has really done a great job, and he did it against Bradley, too of 
uh, jabbing and picking his moments to draw uh, fouls or draw his defender out so he can get some space for the drive. He did that. A couple under, up and under moves in the paint to uh, throw help defenders off. He did that. So um, he was in assassin mode. That's the way I put it on Twitter during the game, and that's the kind of mode you love to see Tyreek in because when he gets into that mindset um, and when teams decide to cover, you know, defend him man-to-man, which is more or less what you and I was doing. They were sending a second defender at him occasionally, but for the most part, it was Trey Burhau who had the responsibility of Tyreek today. Um, Tyreek, you know, he told me after the game, you know, Burhau picked up two fouls in the first half, and he knew it, and he wanted to go at him and because uh, he knew Burhau couldn't afford to get into foul trouble because you and I needs him on the floor on the other end. So uh, Tyreek recognized that, he attacked him, and uh, he was extremely successful in his mission today. Uh, and they needed it because really nobody else on the Sycamores was anywhere near as consistent as you and I did a good job on, especially on ISU's posts. Um, Austin Fife had a weird game, we'll get into that in a second, but um, he did do a good job denying Trey Williams. I mean, especially in the first half, I mean, it was difficult for ISU to even get the ball inside to Trey at all. Um, they did a little bit better job of it in the second half, but most of the touches that Trey was getting was was out on the perimeter. He, he took one three-point shot at one point, um, and that's a credit to Austin Fife's defense. He did a very good job on Trey, and, and, and although LaRavia got a few more opportunities in the paint, you and I was doing a good job um, on him as well. So ISU became very jump shot dependent. They weren't hitting him in the first half at one point. They started the game 5 of 19 from the field. So it was a struggle for a while, but on the other end of the floor, ISU's defense was just as good. Um, they were forcing a lot of turnovers, 17 turnovers today for you and I. And while ISU wasn't scoring off of all of them, Look at the points from turnovers. You only had seven points off 17 turnovers, which you'd like to be better than that. But but they were throwing you and I off their rhythm. And um, you and I's peak lead of the game was nine. That came at the 12-minute mark of the first half. And at that point, it looked like it could get ugly. Uh, but ICU never allowed it to because um, they were physical enough with you and I's guards that they never got into a shooting rhythm. Uh, Austin Fife had seven turnovers, all of them, in the first half. So ISU was doing a good job of denying away from the ball. Some of those passes were just errant passes. Um, some of them were just flat-out mistakes by you and I, but some of them were forced by ISU. They were getting – ISU had a ton of tipped balls in this game. Um, so that was a part of it. So credit to ISU's defense because as good as Tyreek was – the defense is what kept them in the game and ultimately got the game back to a tie late in the first half before uh, Noah, Car- Noah Carter hit a three-pointer at the buzzer of the first half. Um, but ISU fought back as, they, as they've done in other games when they've started slow and got themselves back into it and controlled most of the second half. Um, so there's a lot of credit there. And ISU's defense in the second half was really good too. It was funny there. For a while, you and I was so desperate to get the ball into the paint um, ISU was just basically playing volleyball, or the way I put it in my story was um, they were tipping passes, the entry passes into the post. And it looked like um, like when you watch a football game and a defensive 
tackle or defensive end gets his paw up to knock down like a like a short pass uh, in football. I mean, they were just swatting him out. And that's a credit to ISU's defensive plan and, you know, the, uh, you know, following scouting report, those things you hear a lot when things aren't going well. Well, they did a good job of it today and uh, really kept Austin Fife from ever getting going. He had 11 points and so did Burhau, but, you know, at no point did they feel like they were ever in any kind of rhythm uh, to get you and I back into it. Um, the only time you and I did get themselves back into it is when ISU kind of derped their way through the last two minutes of the game. There was a couple fouls in there that didn't need to happen. ISU took a 10-point lead on a Tyreek Key dunk. I think there was 158 left when he got that, and you're thinking to yourself, well, that felt like a dagger. Um, but then Trey Williams goes down and fouls Austin Fife and he gets a three-point play out of it. So then it goes right back to seven. And then there was this ridiculous stretch where I don't even think ISU was playing bad, but where literally like every tipped ball either went out of bounds for you and I or bounced like three off of three people and then the you and I guy would just happen to be able to pick up the loose ball. I mean, it was it was bad luck more than it was bad playing by the Sycamores. Um, you and I had seven team rebounds, and I swear to God, they had to have picked up like five of them in that stretch. I mean, team rebounds, if you don't know, are when the ball gets tipped out of bounds or stuff like that. I mean, there was it's, it, it seemed like everything that could go wrong in that stretch did for ICU. You and I actually had a chance to tie the game. I mean, it got down to three points um, after Cooper Nice missed the front end of a one-and-one. One. Um, but uh, um, Bowen Bourne missed a three-pointer. Uh, Fife got the rebound, and then I will admit ISU got a little bit of a benefit of a call as uh, they called it a tie-up when uh, I think it was Julian Larry tied up um, Austin Fife, and it was a very brief tie-up, but um, but they called it. The possession arrow was in ISU's favor. Actually, after a similar tie-up that was pretty short, had gone in UNI's favor uh, maybe a minute or so before that. So. Um, you could say it evens out. You and I probably wouldn't feel that way, but um, but ISU gets the ball back. They're able to inbound against the press. Tyreek Key goes to the line, and you know what happens when he goes to the line. It's usually uh, money. So he put the game away, four-point win. ISU wins their seventh in a row. That is the longest Valley winning streak um, since 2000. So we're talking about before my time, and I've been covering Indiana State since like 1847. So... Um, if you're talking about anything that happened before my time on the beat, it was a long time ago. And that 2000 team, of course, won the Valley regular season title, the last Sycamore team to do that. So when you start talking about accomplishments that league champions did, it tells you how good this team is playing and the focus that they've had. And the thing I wrote about this in the story, in the game story, the thing that's impressed me about Indiana State is you talk to these guys after the game and... I've covered teams that went on winning streaks before. ISU went on an eight-game winning streak just last year. Most of it was non-conference. It bled a little bit into Valley play. But most teams get on, you know, there's, there's a certain high that you see teams get on. I think of the streak in the 2006 Sycamores, 05-06 team, started the season, I think it was eight or nine and zero. And there were a couple amazing victories in that. They beat IU at home. They beat Butler on a last-second shot by Tyson Schnitker. Um, I think another game went double overtime that they won. 
And that team felt, you know, you, you felt the rush of what that team was doing. They were scraping by um, and also rising to the occasion. But, you know, you felt th there was a permanence with that team because it had David Moss, who's still to this day the best player I've seen at ISU. Um, but you also felt like, you know, they were riding a little bit of a wave, maybe playing a little bit over their heads, you know, to be fair. Um, unfortunately, Moss got hurt right after the streak ended. Uh, ISU went 0 for January that year, and that uh, when Moss came back, they started playing well again. But that really sabotaged what probably could have been a really good season um, in Royce Weltman's second to last year. But um, I don't get that impression with this team, though. When I talk to these guys after the game, they're all kind of blasé about it, when, and in a good way, not in a bad way. Um, very businesslike. Uh, and Trey Williams said it first, and then after I asked Tyreek Key about it, he said the same thing. Trey Williams said, we're not satisfied with what we're doing. We know we can do better. We can play better on both ends of the floor. And what a great attitude that is to have when you're winning. Because to stay hungry when you're winning and not get, not rest on your laurels and not, you know, look at the standings and say, oh my God, look what we've done. This is amazing. It is amazing what they've done. But that's for us to talk about. If the players are matter of fact about it, that's exactly what you want. Um, you don't want them to be dead inside either, but what you do want is, you know, kind of a business-like, um, kind of ruthless attitude towards going out and winning. I don't know if I'd call this team ruthless yet, but um, but I really like the... The, and it's not swagger either. I just like the attitude that this team has about what they've been doing. Um, and I think it's going to serve them well going forward. Um, my goal out of this series was to get a split. I mean, you go on the road, regardless of how well a team is playing, and knowing how tough you and I is to play against, um, you know, I was, my, I don't know if I'd call it a best case scenario, but my Scenario you wanted to see out of this from ISU's perspective to stay into the top half of the league was to get a one-on-one -on -one split. And maybe that's what will happen. But now that they've already got the split, might as well be greedy and go for it tomorrow. I mean, and ISU, through these Valley two-game series, has been, with the exception maybe of the Loyola series, has been better in the second game of these series, which is a testament to the conditioning this team has, the mental strength that they've had. In some cases, they've been trying to win a game, you know, in the early part of the season. They came at Drake and um, fell just a little bit short in the end against the Bulldogs, as every team has, ha has this year. Valpo did again on Saturday. They nearly beat Drake today, but couldn't uh, close the deal, just as ISU couldn't in their second game. Um, ISU was better at Missouri State in the second game. Illinois State was probably a wash. They were about equal in each game, but ISU was um, certainly better against Bradley in the second game last week. So we'll see what we get tomorrow. Um, you know, it's it was a punishing game, but for both teams. So we'll see which team is more motivated. You and I, you know, they they need to win. They're three and eight in the league now, so they need to be hungry. There's still, you know, there's so many teams that are down in that three and eight ish three and six ish type range i mean you got bradley down there you got southern down there um valpo's a little bit above that fray but they could fall into it uh especially since they're playing drake right now 
So you got a lot of teams. One of those teams is probably going to be able to escape their fate, depending on their late schedule and how they play down the stretch. Um, and Evansville still has to play a lot of the league. You know, they I don't think they've played either Loyola or Drake yet. So there might be some losses built into them too, even though they've been playing pretty well. So, um, you know, there's still an opportunity for these teams down in the lower half of the standings to climb out. And so you and I is going to be playing pretty desperate tomorrow. But ISU has faced teams that have been desperate before. Bradley was desperate last week, and they handled that. So um, you got to like the way this team is playing. Um, on an individual basis today, we typically do these on the games. Uh, we already talked about Tyreek and his outstanding play today. Trey Williams... Nobody else was great statistically. He was two for four, five rebounds, four uh, points, three steals. He and Jake Laravia each had three steals. A lot of that a tribute to the defense they were playing on Austin Fife um, and just ISU's or UNI's interior players in general. Um, so he was doing some things defensively today, but just uh, you know going up against Fife is a is a tall order. Um, no pun intended. Jake Laravia two of seven, four of four from. The line, four rebounds, eight points, four assists, so he continues to distribute well in the three steals I mentioned. So though the points were lower than his season average, LaRavia was productive today. He did have a little bit of kind of the return of a little bit of foul issues. He, he picked up all three of his fouls like in a very brief spate in the second half, uh, but, but better in the second half than in the first, so he's been able to stay on the floor. Cooper Nice, two of nine, and that was another thing you and I did well today is ISU runs a lot of its first half offense through Cooper, if you've noticed. You and I apparently noticed on film, and they were really determined to take him away early in the game, and they did a good job of that. He was two of nine, two of seven from three-point range, four rebounds, six points, three assists. So Cooper was good in other ways, and he's been good all year, as we've mentioned before. Julian Larry continues to play pretty well. Two of six from the field, one of three, three-point range, two rebounds, uh, five points, two assists, and a steal. Um, his activity today was good. Uh, different to go up against the UNI defense. He hasn't, I'm not saying he hasn't seen good defenses, but it's that's a difficult team to play for your first time. But he did all right. Cam Baycoat continues to be really good. Two of four from the field, one of three from three-point range. The one he hit was his first one. So at that point, he was five for five on the season until he finally missed one. Three rebounds, five points, one assist. And the one thing you probably noticed, as I have, is that they're playing Cam in, in late in the game. Um, now, they did put Cooper in after ISU had trouble with the press um, the first couple times you and I used it. Uh, but they've been taking Cooper off the floor and putting Cam in late in the game, so that's an interesting development that we saw last week against Bradley, and Bradley, and we saw it again today against you and I. Before they actually had both Cam and Cooper on the floor um, late in today's game. Randy Miller Jr. He's struggling a little bit right now. 0 for three from the floor, four rebounds, uh, one turnover. Just has had trouble getting into rhythm. I think Randy's issue right now is that he's he's just a little bit. Um, He's being hesitant, I think. Um, he's dribbling his way into defenders, uh, not getting clean shots. The ball tends to stick with him a little bit. Um, for whatever reason, he seems to have the ball a lot late in the shot clock. And, uh, you know, so some of these shots he's taking are late shot clock heaves that aren't high percentage. So 
Uh, he's due for a good game, so we'll see if it comes. Kobe Barnes played today 10 minutes, one of three from the field. That was a reverse layup and a steal. I mean, Kobe's just out there to be a blue-collar guy, and, and that's what he did. So those are the only guys who played today. Of course, Tobias Howard remains out. Um, he's back. He's, he's not suspended anymore. Um, and he did practice in the run-up to you and I, but didn't make the trip. And had a lot of people asking me why, and I think the only reason is is that you know when he was suspended after that um, game against Southern Illinois, he basically spent over a week away from the team. I mean, it's not like he was suspended and practicing. He was not there, um, you know, in the in the week before Bradley and and actually I think the day or two after even. <clears throat> so it's a little bit much to ask somebody who, especially when the rest of the team has been playing so well, to ask somebody to just jump in and go, oh yeah, yeah, you know, you know, no hard feelings, just jump in here and be prepared. I think ISU wanted to stagger this a little bit so TJ should be back for the Evansville games but um, didn't surprise me that he didn't make the trip up here because why mess with a good thing you know so and TJ's got to earn his way back into the good graces of the team which I, I he's on the road to doing um, by Greg Lansing's account you know he's uh, the teammates his teammates wanted him back I think that was really important um, and TJ wanted to be back and be a part of you know the good that ISU is doing so so we'll see him next week when ISU plays Evansville but um, didn't make the trip up here although a couple players who did uh, who won't be playing is uh, Nick Hiddle and Kalex Stevens so it was interesting to see them on a on a road trip I'm going to write about them later this week I talked to them on Friday so get a little bit of their story as they sit through a tough year of not being able to play so uh, we'll uh, be writing about them when I get back from the Arctic here um, no, no, nothing else really to note here statistically. ISU did shoot 50% in the second half, so obviously a lot of that was Tyreek Key. Um, you and I did out-rebound ISU by a pretty wide margin, 45 to 31. Um, Fife did have 10 rebounds. He, he came very close to a triple-double with the one in the triple being the turnovers, so... Um, he had 10 rebounds, 11.7 turnovers, so that's not the kind of triple-double you want. Um, so, but nothing else really statistically here jumps out at me in a big way. So, but a good win, and, and ISU now 8-5 and five in the Valley. Um, now a full game up on both Missouri State and Evansville with these staggered games, it's you know, when I say a game, when you look, it's like looking at baseball standings um, when the games are staggered out and teams have played different amount of games. I mean, ISU is even with Evansville and Missouri State in the loss column, but they have two more wins, so that equates to a one-game lead uh, if you were doing it baseball standing style. Um, ISU isn't going to catch Loyola or Drake. Um, and even if they did catch Loyola, they're not going to win the tiebreaker because that's all based on uh, since they split, it's based on NCA net, which Loyola's got a really good net at this point. So third place is probably the ceiling, but you know you want to solidify it. You don't want to put yourself back in the muck and uh, start running into uh, getting into tiebreakers and all that stuff. Although at this point, ISU is going to win tiebreakers against Southern, Bradley, Illinois State, and now Northern Iowa uh, because it'd be hard for Northern Iowa to catch ISU in the net. So you're in a good spot, but you don't want to 
obviously surrender uh, the momentum you have. It's important for ISU to get greedy and get that win tomorrow. Get to, if they get to the win tomorrow, they'll be 9-5, and five, so the worst they'll finish is 9-9 nine and nine in the league. Uh, they'll have their longest Valley win streak since 1979. So when you start throwing in 1979s in there, you know you're doing some good stuff. Um, so why not come out and uh, get you and I in their in their house again tomorrow um, while you uh, while you're riding the high? So we'll see what happens. But um, you know, I did want to take this opportunity um, to talk about something I haven't talked about this year, and it's the big giant elephant that would fit in this giant room I'm in and uh, that's the Greg Lansing situation and I haven't written much about it I talked to Greg about it before the season and he told me and he stuck with it that he was going to comment on it once and, and it turned out to be in the season preview and then he was not going to talk about it during the season um, as you probably know Greg is in the last year of his contract um, after his rollover was canceled four years ago now, I guess it would be, um, that he had signed the year, I think it was in 2012 he signed it, it was after the 11-12 season. Um, then AD Ron Prettyman signed him to a five-year rollover contract, which means um, and until that contract is terminated, you're perpetually on a five-year deal. So that deal was ended, um, and we're at the end of the contract now. So um, everybody asks me, whether you know what what the situation with this is <clears throat> and you know I don't truly know for a fact what the situation is but you know you can read the handwriting on the wall and you can understand that um, you know the conventional wisdom and this is my opinion is that you know this team has to do some pretty good things for Greg Lansing to be back at the very least he's on the hot seat you know the dreaded hot seat that the you know the national media and media in general likes to talk about. So I'll use that term as I launch into this, and you know somebody is going to have to logically explain to me now why Lansing remains on the hot seat. Um, and I say that knowing the history of all of this, knowing that ISU had five straight losing seasons, knowing that there were periods during that time where this team was really disappointing, coming out with 30-point losses to certain teams, um, playing poorly in St. Louis, um, putting some, giving player, some players some scholarships who probably didn't deserve them. There were some mistakes made in there, although not necessarily on core players, just on more ancillary type players. Um, knowing that there were some years that could have gone better. You know, even I, I've written about it before. I mean, when this team has played poorly, um, they have warranted criticism, and um, that was earned, and that was deserved at the time. When ISU is getting, like I said, I think it was, what, the 17 season maybe, uh, where they finished the year, they were getting drubbed by almost everybody um, and really looking like they were going the wrong direction. The criticism at that point was deserved. Um, but let's look at this now and let's look at it logically and take, you know, strip out your own biases, whether you like Craig or whether you don't, and look at this logically, look at the evidence and ask yourself, why would any coach be fighting for his job right now based on what this team is doing? And I'm not just talking about this um, seven game win streak they're on. I mean, 
it goes beyond that. But let's start with that first. I mean, you look at this by every logical standard. If you're an outsider looking in in particular, um, everything right now would suggest that Greg deserves a chance to come back. Um, you know, first of all, and this is important to state right off the bat, as far as the public is concerned, and I include myself in this, I don't have any off-the-record information um, that would tell me otherwise, but um, to my knowledge, Lansing has not been put under, in, under any kind of standard by uh, the administration uh, in terms of what he has to do to keep his job. Now, maybe they've discussed that privately. I don't know. I haven't been told that by anybody um, because that's not something somebody's just going to come out and tell me. Um, so we don't know of any kind of like when Barry Hinson was at Southern Illinois, it was very evident that he had to make the NCAA tournament or he was not going to be back at SIU. That has never been publicly stated here um, at Indiana State, and that's important. I mean, many may suspect that's what the, what the standard is, but that has never been publicly stated. And so if there's no standard for the public to hold Lansing to, no standard by which um, the business can hold them to, there's no, the college basketball world in general isn't under the impression publicly that Lansing has to do this to keep his job. Uh, we could guess what this might be, but it's guesses. It's not out there black and white for all of us to know. And I think that's important because that's a measuring stick. And if we know what the measuring stick going into a season is, then you can judge by it. But we don't know that. So all you could do is judge by, at this point, is to judge the wins and achieving the standard set for them before the season. That's the standard we're living by here, at least as far as I'm concerned. Privately, it may be different. But for us... We set the standard based on what this team was supposed to do this year, so let's look at that. Um, first of all, like I mentioned, ISU has its longest conference win streak in 21 years. Um, if the Sycamores win tomorrow, as I also mentioned, it'll be the longest since 1979. That doesn't sound to me like somebody who should be on the hot seat. Um, that sounds to me like somebody who's doing a pretty good job with this program. Um, like I said, I've been covering this team. This is my, I don't know, 16th or 17th season. I've seen good teams. I've seen bad teams. I've not seen a team win seven in a row in the Valley. So um, that's something you can't just knock that. I mean, you may not like Lansing, but you can't knock that. You can't deny that that is happening. Um, and you can't, you know. So that is a fact. We know that ISU was picked fourth in the preseason this year. Right now, ISU is in third place, and it's beating the teams that were thought of as their peers in, in kind of the under the, the what was perceived to be the upper tier of the league. At the beginning of the season, Loyola and you and I were thought to be basically fighting for the league title. You and I gets a pass basically because they lost their best player. Instead, Drake has exceeded expectations and essentially replaced you and I in that you know fight for the league title. They're, Drake is undefeated, so. Good for Drake. Uh, that doesn't mean ISU is, you know, even though ISU was picked ahead of Drake, that doesn't mean that's not a demerit against ISU. That's just a, a credit to what Drake has done. But ISU is, you know, one spot above where people thought they would be. They're basically right in the, I thought them and Bradley were basically interchangeable. Bradley was picked third. Um, so, you know, they're doing exactly what we thought they would do and they had to fight their way out of a one in five hole to do it i mean that could have gone south big time um i know at the beginning of the season i was 
as good I knew that ISU was playing good teams, but I was concerned. I mean, sometimes teams don't dig their way out of stuff like that. And instead, ISU has done the opposite and just kind of gritted down and gotten better as the season has gone along, which is another credit to what the coaching staff has done. Again, not something that you see a coaching staff that supposedly is on the hot seat uh, is able to accomplish a lot of times because they feel the pressure um, and sometimes that pressure is conveyed to the players and they play with pressure. That hasn't been the case this year. This team is playing uh, with a purpose and that's a credit to the players but it's also a credit to the coaching staff and again it's another sign that you know the hot seat probably isn't appropriate. We all know that Lansing has recovered from a five-year streak of losing seasons and has this team playing better than any ISU team has since 2014, which is when they finished second behind the unbeaten Wichita team. Let's acknowledge this first. Very, very few coaches get a chance to even coach after five straight losing seasons. I mean, I went back and did the research on this um, whenever it was, two years ago or maybe even last year, and I was hard-pressed to find any coach that was able to continue coaching after having a stretch of losing like that, at least in the modern era. Um, so most coaches don't get the chance to do this. Um, so we're in uncharted waters here to some degree. Um, but to his credit, Greg Lansing has done a great job of, uh, of doing a Lazarus Act. Um, and not only that, He's proven that he can win with a different group of players than the one he won with early in his career. Remember what a lot of people said when ISU was, you know, playing in the top half of the league from 2011 to 14. Um, you know, the Lansing's detractors, one of the tags against Lansing is that they said he won with Kevin McKenna's team. Now, Kevin McKenna deserves a lot of credit for bringing talent into this program. No question about it. He did. Um, guess who his associate head coach was and guess who was doing a lot of the recruiting, including Jake Odom, for that team. It was Greg Lansing. So he's recruited this team uh, under the gun of an expiring contract, which is supposedly a death knell to recruiting. Uh, every coach talks about how they want security on their contracts so they can't be negatively recruited. Well, I guarantee you ISU has been facing some negative recruiting, and yet... Uh, this program has four standouts on its team right now. Tyreek Key, Jake Laravia, Trey Williams, and Cooper Nice. All are players that would start on pretty much every other Valley team in the league or, or play a lot of minutes. So Lansing has been able to put a winning team on the floor with a gun to his head contract-wise. That is not easy to do. Uh, not at a mid-major. It could happen at the Power Five because of the allure of the school. That is difficult to do at a mid-major. He's done it. They're well on their way to a second winning season in a row. They may finish better than they did last year. It doesn't sound like somebody who should be on the hot seat. Some of the problems that plagued some of Lansing's teams in the past, um, inconsistency, getting a little happy with success, you know, winning a big game and then dropping, you know, a, a game to a team that, you know, I think back to 2013, which I still think is the best ISU team I've covered, but that was the team that went to Hawaii and beat Miami, um, beat Ole Miss, uh, beat the hell out of Creighton at Holman Center. And still to this day, I think maybe that game and last year's win over Loyola are the two uh, most emphatic beatdowns I've seen ISU get. But if you remember that, that ISU team went into Wichita, the team that went to the Final Four uh, later that year, and 
beat that team, I think, by 12 or 13 at Coke Arena. And uh, obviously a great Wichita team. Um, and ISU was riding high. I remember their next game was at Drake. And I remember sitting in the Drake Diner in Des Moines and watching uh, the game that was on before ISU played like at 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon. I was in there having a late lunch. And the, whatever game they had, they were doing one of those blind resume things where they list the, you know, the, the, the credentials of the teams without showing which teams they were. And it was Kentucky, North Carolina, and Indiana State for an at-large bid. Um, in 2013 so that's how good that team was but then that team turns around and loses to a pretty lousy Drake team um, on the road and they they never really recovered Uh, they finished poorly that was where all the talk about you know February fade outs came from because that team ended up losing seven of nine down the stretch blew their chance in an at-large they did go to the NIT but um, you know that's been one of the things that people have used against Lansing over the years, and sometimes it's been deserved. Uh, But this team hasn't been inconsistent, and neither was last year's team. Um, I think that's a big, I think that's a testament to the fact that Lansing has a coaching staff um, that is arguably the best that he's had, and you gotta give him credit for bringing these guys in. Um, Kareem Richardson, who of course was an assistant under Royce Walton before, uh, before he went out and um, well, you know, was on Louisville's staff under Rick Pitino, coached, was head coach himself at Missouri, Kansas City. Um, I think he's been, I think Kareem in particular has been a really important and experienced addition to this staff. And um, I feel like this team isn't as rigid as it was um, in years past in terms of what they want to do. They still play man defense and they still essentially run the same offense, but they're more varied in what they do with it. You know, ISU, is, it's not a novelty to see ISU play a zone anymore. They, they'll go out and do that once in a while. And so I feel like this team is a little bit more flexible. I think that's a testament to Greg's, you know, willingness to be not be dogmatic, uh, which is a tag that I know I've criticized him over um, in past seasons. But I think uh, in that respect, he's grown as a coach. And uh, so that's another sign of progress, and the wins have come with it. So that's uh, another check in his favor. Um, ISU's long tag against this program, and it goes back for years, um, is that they haven't been able to develop big men. Well, right now, ISU has the best tandem of big players since probably the Matt Wren, uh, Jabril Conte era. Certainly the best tandem of big men they've had since I've been around. Um, Trey Williams, I think, is the best center they've had um, in my however many years it is I've been covering the team. Jake LaRavia is probably the best power forward. So, and the versatility of their games um, is part of what makes this team go. And you got to give ISU credit for recognizing these guys. Trey Williams was a diamond in the rough, and and ISU was smart enough to stick with LaRavia when he reopened his commitment when he originally went to SIU Edwardsville, uh, or originally committed there. So, um, you can't knock that. I mean, you can't knock, you know, there's been mistakes. There's been the Daniel Humans of the world and all that that didn't work out, but these are two big hits, and this program is winning because of it, and you got to give the head coach credit for that. So that's another, uh, you know, another good good thing in Lansing's favor. I think ICU has done a good job of adjusting to the COVID era of basketball as well as anyone has. As I mentioned earlier in the podcast, um, this team has been physically 
um, in terms of their conditioning as good as anybody has. They're not wearing out in the second halves of games. You watched Bradley last week, and they were out of gas. Now, they had played a game, um, you know, I think it was maybe two or three days before they came to Terre Haute, which ISU didn't have to do. So take that into account. But ISU has been really good um, finishing these second doing these close games in the second part of these second games they've done a really good job of finishing and that's a credit to the way they're being handled um, in practice and and in other ways and not only that they're getting better too I mean this team is playing remember early in the Valley season we were talking about how poor ISU was defensively teams were coming in remember Drake shot like 60 something percent in one of the halves they played Um, I think they were over 50 percent in three out of the four halves um, in that series, Missouri State was similarly dominating the Sycamores. We haven't been talking much about that lately because this team has been getting better as the season has been going along. And that's another um, demerit that Let Lansing had in the past. This team kind of stuck at the same level. Well, not this year. They've been significantly better on the defensive end. So you got to give credit for that. Um, <clears throat> the one issue that ISU had this year was uh, was TJ Tobias Howard Jr. and that was handled as well as it could be. Um, you know, I feel like Lansing struck the right balance between you know stick and carrot. I mean, and I don't know that he's always done a great job of that. There's been other players here, some of them you probably don't know about, who were similarly selfish or uh, not necessarily problems, but um, problems on the floor you know, not playing with their teammates well, that probably could have been handled with a little bit more of a stick approach in the past. I'm not going to name any names, but you could probably think of a few. Um, they didn't let that happen this year. Uh, TJ came off the floor in that Southern game, didn't have the right attitude, wasn't playing um, in a way that benefited the team. And the message was sent, you know, you are suspended. You are not going to play until you get your mind right. And and yet, it didn't turn into like a T.J. Bell situation from a few years ago where um, the player was dismissed from the team and then it became a big, you know, morale thing uh, inside the locker room. If you remember that season, T.J. came back, which was awkward, um, I guess. Um, it, it became a thing beyond the point where it should have been a thing. And that didn't happen with Howard this year. He came back to practice, um, you know, understanding that he had to uh, get his mind right and I think that's been handled as well we'll see what what happens when he comes back to playing but uh, so far so good and the message was sent that you know you can't no one's bigger than the team I think it was an important message to send so that was handled well if ISU did win another game if they lost every single game they played for the rest of the season that wouldn't be good for Greg's uh, situation but if they did he will still finish the season with a career winning record um, despite the fact, and fans don't want to hear about this, but it is true, having the worst or near worst financial support in the NBC over the entirety of his tenure. Um, and think about this too. The worst support, or worst or near worst, it depends on how you want to look at it. Evansville is down there budget wise as well. Uh, this in the years of Pete Creighton when they had Doug McDermott uh, right before they left the league in the unquestionably peak years of Wichita State when they ran through the Ron Baker and Fred Van Vliet years where they were a national power. ISU was competing with that. They had to 
peak, uh, they have to continue to compete with peak Loyola with Cameron Krautwig and their Final Four team from a couple years ago, um, and etc. And you know, Northern Iowa's great teams in the middle part of the decade and in in the early part of the decade. Um, that's what ISU has been up against. Uh, that's what Lansing's been up against, despite the fact his salary is one of the lowest in the league, and ISU's investment in what it's supposed to be its flagship sport. Um, has been poor compared to the rest of the teams in the league, and yet Lansing has a winning record um, overall and is working on what would be the second year in a row of a top league finish uh, to go along with uh, finishing second in 2014, finishing third in 2011, um, and I believe finishing the top half in 2013, and I think 2015, I'd have to look at that, but um, that the, the support that he's been given, these results are over the support. The, these supports are better than the financial support he's been given in this job. And I know fans, for a lot of fans, that goes in one ear and out the other. These are the same fans who demand ISU invest without throwing any money at ISU, too. I mean, people ask for things, you know, because they just want them without understanding that you know, unless a change is made in the way ISU budgets internally or unless somebody is going to be a sugar daddy and give this program some money, um, you know, th that's that's the only way this changes it for the coach. So the coach is dealing with this. This coach has dealt with it as well as any coach has in the era that ISU has been in the lower half of the budget. He's doing better than, other than the, Royce Waltman had a better peak, but Consistently throughout his tenure, he's doing a better job than Royce Waltman did in his tenure. And he's doing a better job than any of Royce's predecessors did going back to uh, Bill Hodges. So um, whether you like it or not, that's a fact. I mean, if he loses every single game for the rest of the season and loses his job after the Valley Tournament, he's walking away from here with a winning record uh, despite, frankly, very poor uh, financial support from the university. So understand that and understand how that looks from the outside looking in. Um, you know, what drives a lot of ISU fans who don't like Lansing crazy is the fact that um, national writers tend to look at this and say, you know, it's amazing what Lansing is doing with how much money ISU is spending. And people here are like, well, yeah, but you don't see it close up every day, blah, blah, blah. There's something to be said for that, but the truth is, is that what they're saying is right. I mean, the results that ISU is getting with the budget that they have um, exceeds what you, they should be getting, and that's a credit to what Lansing's done. Added to that, Lansing's teams have never had any NCAA troubles whatsoever. None. Not one single whiff. I, the only NCAA violation I know of, and this was a, uh, a second grade minor violation, is when they talked to me one time. Um, I did a story, that, the kid from Brownsburg, he went to J Julian Mavunga. That might have even gone back to the McKenna era where they were recruiting him. He ended up going to Miami of Ohio and he was visiting and I talked to him during a visit, which is a no-no. It's not my no-no, it's their no-no. I mean, I can do whatever I want, but um, that's an NCAA violation. I don't even, that may have even been during Kevin's era still. Greg was on staff. Um, that's the only, and that is a 
the definition of a secondary violation. That is not going to get you probation or anything like that. That's the only one I can think of. There's never been any hint of any recruiting troubles, um, no, um, you know, abuse of players or anything like that. Um, this program has been squeaky clean, and you can't say that for every program, even in the Valley. Um, there's been very few true NCAA issues, but there's been disciplinary issues behind the scenes, things like that, that have plagued other Valley programs. It's never happened here. ISU has never been part of the transfer, at least not yet, hasn't been part of the transfer uh, merry-go-round. ISU has made, kept its talent here. Jordan Barnes played his whole career here. Tyreek Key is going to play his whole career here. Bretton Scott played his whole career here. Jake Odom played his whole career here. Nobody of consequence has ever transferred out. Um, the only one, the only player I could think of was R.J. Mahurin, who wanted to go play with his brother at Indiana Wesleyan. So players here, when, when they get talent, they keep them. So there's something to be said for that. Um, there's been very few off-the-court issues. When Tobias Howard had a DUI before the season, that was the first arrest ISU had had in like five or six years. Um, going all the way back to when Brenton Scott tried to pass him off, pass, pass himself off as his twin brother uh, when he got pulled over uh, when he was still redshirted. I think that was that might have been going all the way back to 2013-14 when Odom was still playing. Um, that was the last arrest ISU had. That is rare, let me tell you. Most programs are happy to go through a season without an arrest. I'm not going to name any names, but there's been some Valley programs um, in recent years that, would, that have barely gone a couple months without an arrest. I'm not going to name any names. If you know the Valley, you know who I'm talking about. But... Um, ISU very rarely has any off-the-court issues. And, you know, we take that for granted because we never hear about it. And we never have any reason to hear about it because I read the arrest log every day. I, and that's exactly, and guess why, what I'm looking for in the arrest log? I'm looking for players to see if I have to do something outside of my norm for my job. Never, ever see ISU players in there. And people could say, well, that's the way it's supposed to be. Well, of course that's the way it's supposed to be. That doesn't mean that's the way it always is. So that's a credit to what this program has done. Lansing legitimately enjoys the community of Terre Haute. I mean, he spent a lot of his life here. I mean, you go back to when he first started, before I was here, when he was on Sherman Dillard's staff to start and then Royce Waltman's staff in the 90s. There's about five years of his life. He went to Iowa for whatever it was, six or seven years, and he comes back uh, for the last year of Royce Waltman and then Kevin McKenna, and then he took over the job himself. I mean, Greg has been here for, um, what, 15 years now, straight? His 11 as head coach, three under McKenna and one under Waltman. So you add that to the five years he was here before. He spent 20 years here in Terre Haute. He spent half of a lifetime here. And he legitimately enjoys this community. And not only that, um, Greg is an affable person. You know, Now, he and I get into it sometimes, but that's just the way it goes with a reporter and a coach. They're not always going to get along. Um, that's fine. That's part of the territory. But Greg is not like some negative guy walking around um, pissing everybody off because of his personality. He's not like that. He's a credit to this community. He works. Uh, he's proud of it. He supports uh, good causes within the community and within the coaching community and at large. He's a credit to this university, um, one of the best ambassadors they have. 
uh, in the athletic department. So never have had a hint of any, you know, there's probably donors that don't like them, but that happens everywhere too. Um, but there's plenty of donors who do like him um, because he's a good guy and he makes them feel like they're a part of the program. So that he's a credit to ISU in that respect. And I'll say this, this doesn't have anything to do with his job status. He's maintained his affability despite the fact that he's put up with a lot of bull over the years from people. Let's pardon my French again, but he has. Um, especially, and I'm going to mention this, I've never mentioned this before, especially regarding his former marriage to Angie uh, Lansing, who's, they've been divorced now for several years. Um, Greg is remarried. Um, and, uh, but to this day, you still hear people, including some people in my own business who ask me, well, you know, what's the deal with, with uh, Greg and, and Angie? And the deal is that there, there is no, no deal. I mean, I think people, there's a group of people out there for some reason who assume that he has some sort of in or influence or extra influence because Angie still works in the athletic department. Angie, if you don't know, is the senior women's administrator and the associate athletic director. Yes, they are in the same athletic department. No, that doesn't mean he's being protected by anybody on high. People who say stuff like that don't know what the hell they're talking about. And I think it's been pretty awful the slurs that both Greg and Angie Lansing have had to put up with over the years because of the fact that, you know, when, when, when he came back here, Angie was not a part of the athletic department. She was brought on to uh, be senior w women's administrator, which is a job that has nothing to do with his job at all. Um, it didn't help Angie gain the athletic director job when it opened up in the mid-2010s. Uh, she was a candidate for it, but she didn't get it. Um, so if you would have thought there would have been influence, that's where it might have come into play, but it didn't. Um, and I've always thought that that was logically, it didn't make any sense. I'm not going to get into their relationship because frankly, it's none of your business nor mine, but I'm not really sure why anybody would think that, especially after a divorce, that one person would be kind of, you know, uh, you know, helping the other person out you know why why would somebody anyway I don't want to get too deep into that but what I'm saying is is that Lansing has maintained his pride at Indiana State despite the fact that he's put up with a lot of nonsense that has gotten personal over the years and I think that part of it has been very wrong and the people who've done that you know should uh, you know shouldn't be proud of the way they've conducted themselves if they've gone down that road to uh, you know, try to create an agenda to get rid of somebody. It's and 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 when I say that, that's nobody in the administration. That's fans. Um, nobody inside the administration is you know falling prey to that. So let's make that clear. But I think it's been really unfair. And if I were in either one of their shoes, I'd be, I'd be. I, it's amazing the patience they've had to put up with that junk over the years. Um, the only thing I will say, the one knock that I think still sticks, and that has to be corrected this year, is ISU has performed poorly at Arch Madness uh, since the Odom era has, has ended. They did beat Illinois State in 2016. That was somewhat of an upset. I think ISU was a sixth seed that year against Illinois State, and they beat them. Um, but apart from that, it has been a bad run of years at Arch Madness. A lot of beatdowns, um, a lot of embarrassing performances over there. 
the only close game I can recall in really since 2000, other than the win over Illinois State, is um, I think it was against Illinois State again where ISU played the game tight, but Brenton Scott was like 0 for 14 from the floor or something like that, and that ended up costing ISU. Um, I think that would have that would have been that was Brenton's last game, so that would have been 2018, I guess. Um, apart from that, it's been pretty ugly over in St. Louis. So that is the one knock I will say that has to be corrected. Um, so that's important this year, but is that against everything else I said, is that still put somebody on the hot seat? I guess that's up to you whether you think it deserves that or not. Um, and I do want to say I understand Sherrard Klingscale's position, and I'm not, I don't want to mean to um, you know, put him in the, cast him in the role of somebody who wants to get rid of Greg because that would be really unfair to Sherrard because he's never said that. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, I will say every boss wants to run their own show. I'm the boss in, in my show at the Tribune Star. So I know the feeling. I've been working at the Tribune Star since 2004. Um, and I've never made a hire on my sports staff in, six, in, in all that time. Not one, not one full-time hire anyway. I've made a lot of part-time ones, but no full-time hires at all. And nothing against the guys I have at all, but it is frustrating when you can't bring in your own person. I get it. I know it. I've lived it. Um, the, the desire to want to have your own people is, is a really strong pull, and believe me, I get it. Um, but I think you also have to understand a good thing when you've got it. And based on all the things I've mentioned, ICU has a pretty good thing going right now. Um, and again, it goes beyond just the eight game or the seven game win streak. I mean, it's there's more fundamental things here at work that um, are things that are gonna be hard to replicate going forward. Two years ago, if ICU would have paid out the rest of Lansing's contract and let them go after five straight losing seasons, I don't think anybody would have batted an eye. Um, but because ISU didn't pay off his contract, he got a new lease on life. And Lansing's second life has been pretty good. It goes to show you, I guess you can live twice. And so far, you have to give Lansing a lot of credit for, you know, with his job, with a shadow hanging over the, his situation, he's done as well as anybody could do um, given that situation. And frankly, I think, has done enough to deserve not to be on the hot seat. We'll see if that's the reality um, as it plays out. Because, you know, you can, the fundamental question with this is you got to ask yourself, if Lansing goes, you have to do better when you make the replacement. Greg Lansing has really raised the standard of how you do better. I mean, it'd be different if he was going out in a 10 and 20 or something like that kind of like how some of the other recent coaches in the Valley have ended their regimes. Um, you know, I think back to Chris Lowry. I mean, it was, as, as much as I like Chris Lowry, I mean, it was pretty evident that it was the end of the road. This is not an end of the road situation. You know, being third place in the Valley, winning seven in a row, uh, being 11 and seven in the league at this point after playing, you know, and some of those seven losses are you know, it's not like they're a bunch of tomato cans. I mean, two of those losses were to Purdue and SLU, both teams' national powers at this point. Um, this is not somebody who's playing out the string, waiting to finish up. Um, so you make a replacement, and you got to do better. That replacement has to do better, and not in five years that they have to do better 
quickly? Um, and that's the core question of all this. Um, you know, the long list of good things I mentioned in Lansing's favor makes it a really tall order for the guy who comes in to replace them because the, can they create the same culture? Can they do this without having to rely on, you know, transfers in and out? That may be the way the business ultimately works down the line, but that's another thing I didn't mention is that the underpinning of Lansing's teams have always been four-year players. It's the underpinning of this year's team. Um, and so can you continue to do that and maintain stability? Some coaches can, some can't. Um, can you continue to lead this program in a way that makes the community proud of the program without players getting in trouble off the floor, without players being punks on the floor? Um, that's something this program is doing right now. Can that continue with somebody new? Maybe, but maybe not. Um, this team, Tyreek Key aside, has its core back for another couple of years. And now most times you don't make a coaching change based on the talent on the roster. But it's not like you look at this, if Lansing were to stick around, it's not like this team is falling off the ocean when Tyreek Key leaves. I mean, you still got Aravia, you still got Trey Williams, you still have Cooper Nice. Uh, you still have Julian Larry. You still have um, Kobe Barnes. You still have... Um, um, oh, I lost my train of thought. Anyway, you got a lot of talent. And so it's not like you have to blow this up. Um, there's pieces here if these players want to stick around. And that's another... That's never a factor in a coaching chains where whether players will say, well, I'm going to leave if so-and-so isn't back. This isn't Hoosiers, but, you know, but it is a consideration that this team is ready-made uh, for no matter who's coaching it next year to still be really good. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's just going to be, um, you know, you have to ask yourself, is the grass going to be greener? Um, We'll see. I mean, does this mean Lansing deserves another like five-year extension? I don't know if I'd go that far, but he do. But I will say he deserves the right of first. Re if if the season ended today, he deserves the right of first refusal to keep his job. I think it's as simple as that. Um, because if you look at it, if Lansing were to take this resume, walk into an office that doesn't know anything about the history and all the BS that people have built up over the years, whether they like them or whether they don't and says, I did this with this amount of money being spent on the program, and I did it over two different periods of time um, and made Indiana State a winner, that's going to look really impressive to somebody on the, from the outside looking in. Um, and I think when we're so close to it sometimes, and I'm guilty of this too, um, and only see a very narrow part of the story and don't see the wider part of the story, um, and of course, naturally, when somebody's been here for a long time, people draw battle lines, and unfortunately, this this infuses our politics as well. But people get so entrenched in the way they feel about things that no matter what happens counter to what they may be feeling, they're going to defend their point of view. There are people out there who Indiana State could win thirty three in a row, and you'd still have people wanting Lansing fired. Indiana State could lose thirty three in a row, and you'd still have people wanting to keep Lansing one way or the other because people, after a while, um, refuse to change their mind about things. And that's not the way the world works. I mean, things do change. Things 
conditions do change, and I think in some respects they have for Greg over the last couple of years. And, um, you know, it's why the hot seat right now isn't really appropriate. So we'll see if that's the way the season ends. We've still got another month to go, a lot of time. But right now, I, you know, I'm not an athletic director. I don't make these decisions, but you look at all the good things that are happening here, and I think it's really hard to try to convince somebody that this is something you want to end. So let's end the podcast on that note, and uh, we'll be uh, covering the game tomorrow. Hopefully I don't freeze to death here in the Arctic conditions of Cedar Falls. What's the temperature now? It is... Uh, it's like it's oh it's dropped to minus 12 so only one degree uh, since I started this so anyway thanks for listening we'll do the the written review um, as I trek back from Iowa um, after the game tomorrow so we'll be delving into that probably delve into some of what I talked about here uh, as well so thanks for listening always glad to have you aboard and uh, we'll be seeing you Probably won't be doing another podcast. I guess we'll be doing it after the first Evansville game next week. We have we actually get back to somewhat of a normal, for a brief period, a normal schedule next week when ISU plays at Evansville on Sunday and then they play the home game on Wednesday. So single games, who, who'd have thunk it? But um, So we'll probably do a podcast after the road game at Evansville next Sunday, I guess. So anyway, until then, thanks for listening. We'll see you later.